Hello, Feisties. I'm Sarah Gross, CEO and founder of Feisty Media. And I'm here to tell you that our foundational strength training course, Strong, is on sale now through April 10th. If you're like me, you probably get a lot of crap in your Instagram or Facebook feed telling you how you should look or how you will feel if you look a certain way. As summer approaches, this only gets worse. We are told we should have a quote-unquote summer body, as if our bodies somehow morph into something completely different just because the weather changes. And frankly, over here at Feisty Media, we are totally sick of it. Because at Feisty, our vision is to build an empowering culture for active women. We want to shift our attention away from what our bodies look like and focus instead on what our bodies can do especially during the summer months when having the physical strength to do the activities we love is so important. The Strong Course is designed to take any woman, regardless of your starting point, through everything you need to know to level up your strength training journey. It includes a 16-week program to help you progress from wherever you are to lifting heavy or heavy-ish with dumbbells or a barbell. It also includes modules on the physiology of strength training for women, nutrition, how we keep ourselves injury-free, and more. I want every woman to be able to do the things that bring her joy and be strong enough to do them for life. Enrollment in this course is now open and you can sign up and learn more at womensperformance.com forward slash strong or check the show notes of this episode for the link. And for those of you who are among the 800 women who have already taken the Strong Course with one of our previous cohorts, congratulations on taking the plunge. And to the rest of you, see you in the course in April. Make this summer your strongest and best ever. Head over to womensperformance.com forward slash strong today. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Business of Fitness podcast with me, Molly Herford, here on the Feisty Media Network. So excited to bring you today's episode, so we are just going to get right into it. Uh, If you listened to our imposter syndrome episode, that was the live first ever broadcast on this feed uh, at the Outspoken Summit, you have heard from Dr. Shauna Payne-Gold, but this episode, we got into it. Oh my gosh, Shauna is one of my absolute favorite people in the entire universe at this point. We talked about everything small business, everything DEI related as, you know, especially as it relates to those of us who are in the fitness industry who maybe have these small businesses where we're solo entrepreneurs, we're solopreneurs if you will. Uh, and it was just such a fascinating episode talking to her about her whole journey into small business ownership from the education space, which I mean, academia and small business could not be further apart. Uh, We also talk about this very important topic for all of us listening, which is how to set your rates and how to stick to your rates, how to ask for more money, how to, you know, have those difficult conversations. Honestly, I learned so much from this episode that Before this is even going live, I actually put the MP3 onto my phone so I could listen to it over and over again. So I've listened to it two times already, even though I was the one doing the interview. That is how helpful this episode is. So without further ado, let's get into it. Enjoy this episode with Dr. Shauna Payne-Gold. 
Okay. Business of Fitness podcast here with Dr. Shauna Payne-Gold. This is, I'm going to call it round two since you were on the live uh, podcast for imposter syndrome just a couple yes. weeks ago. But uh, hi, welcome to the official, the, the podcast studio, if you will. I'm so, so excited to talk to you. <laughs> well, this is going to be great because I know that, you know, on a on a panel, you have to share the airspace, which is great. Um, but there were so many things from that previous podcast that I know that we can just dive deeper into. So this is going to be a great bridge from that launch into other things. I'm really excited to be here. Oh my gosh! I mean, honestly, that yeah, that panel. Like, I think you and I could probably riff for like an hour on "Fake It Till You Make It" alone. Uh, which also, people should go listen to your podcast, Unfazed, uh, where you guys did talk about that. Uh, about the summit and your your learnings from the the whole time, um, but you know we before we even get into outspoken, you just did this post on I saw it on LinkedIn. I think it was on Instagram. And as I was coming up with the questions or like refining my questions today, I just could not stop reading this. So you were talking about sort of what you were thinking about for December 2022, and. I'm going to read a couple of them and then we're going to get into like why you're posting this to the internet, why you're telling everyone and what this all means. Like, yes, yes. uh, So time away with no laptop, limited technology, vitamin D, water confirmed. That's exciting. Uh, (laughs) Practicing some new habits, not resolutions, very specifically not resolutions, because December is the trial run for the following year. That one just... I read that. I was just like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. And projects that you have to get done in 2022 will get done, but projects can get pushed or getting pushed. So what inspired this post? Well, you know, I think about it every year where, yes, I realize that I'm very US centric in that I do like the hard start of a new year, January 1st, clean slate on everything, right? So I love that. I love how that feels. And I've been around 44 years now. And so I know what it feels like to get to mm, January 25th. And you look back and you're like, holy crap. Yeah, the whole first month of the year is gone. I don't feel like I've accomplished as much as I wanted to. I don't even know if I'm going in the right direction that I should. And so given that, let's not wait until January 1st, which we know will go quickly as a month. Instead, starting in December, and then I can kind of play with it a little bit. You know, I can try some things that I think are going to be priorities for the next year. If it doesn't work, pitch it. If it does work, continue doing it. But it's kind of a prime the pump type of moment. It's almost like the warm up to the workout. And, you know, and so given that I try to do that most Decembers, and usually I've, you know, updated a lot of things, not everything, but, you know, I've, looked at, you know, some of my priorities for the following year by December 1st, or I've looked at, oh, this really sucked last year. Let's avoid this, you know, a list of things not to do. Just paying attention to what worked and what didn't work. And, you know, I have a friend of mine that says success leaves clues. She says that all the time. And so I'm like, okay, I should pick up some clues. Even if I don't know what to do, there's lots of indicators of what not to do. And so let's just make some of these shifts. And so I said, hey, we're moving into December. It'll be here very soon. Why not post this and kind of hold myself accountable? And and so that's what I just decided to do as I was sprawled across the couch watching Netflix yesterday. Yes. 
I love it. I love it. I especially love it because it's not like we're going into December with this, you know, hashtag hustle coach culture, you know, mentality. And I think that's how a lot of people approach the new year. When we talk about runways, I think people think about that as like, oh, crap, it's time to go, go, go. We got to go hard for this. Um, but I love that you're really leaning into this idea of like happiness, peace and alignment are the three words you use. And I think that's that's maybe the way we want to hit 2023. That seems smart. Yeah. Well, no, I've even had some friends where like the last few years I've started um, taking vacation between Christmas and New Year's uh, primarily because um, for me being someone from the academic world, usually that's what's called our dead week where there's no classes. There's, you know, the offices aren't even open. If you're going to get away, it's time to get away then that type of thing. And so I've been kind of holding to that week of this is the perfect time to completely disconnect because I know that I'm not necessarily going to come back to 100 emails because everyone's gone from campus, you know, that type of thing. And then I saw another friend of mine who also (laughs) narrowly escaped academia like I did. And she's even extended it out into like that whole first week of January where it's like, this is my whole reset time. I've waited all year to do this. I've saved up. I've, you know, booked my trips. I've done all these things. I'm not doing anything productive right now, quote unquote productive, because the time away for me is productive so I can start fresh and I'm not completely, you know, burnt out by mid-February because I didn't rest enough December, January. So, yeah, I, I've been kind of realigning that. And each year I tweak, but um, that that's my plan for this year. I love it. Okay, so you just alluded to the past in academia. Let's do the quick recap of how you went from academia to entrepreneurship, because I mean, we talked about this at Outspoken. The shift from one to the other is, uh, it's tectonic. I don't even know how else to describe it. No, that's a great word for it. Yes. Well, and you know, I went into this last role that I had in higher education, and I was thinking to myself, (laughs) Little did we know a pandemic was around the corner. Um, You know, I went in there thinking to myself, okay, within about five years, I should be ready to wrap it up here. You know, I've, I've given my time of service to higher education broadly. I've given my time of service to the university system of Maryland, where they have a really great retirement program, really great tuition remission for your dependents, for your children, so forth. So I had already set this kind of, pretty decent goal of five years, you know, start to parlay some of my resources and networks so that I can slowly back away from academia and go into a different direction. And here comes the pandemic. And here comes Shauna getting very comfortable and very productive at home during that time as well. And when I started to kind of reflect on what was working and what wasn't working, the, you know, it's kind of like cause and effect. The cause of lots of other things suffering was that position in higher ed. You know, when you have an hour commute and you already, you know, you're usually that what we call the zero dark 30 workouts where you work out early in the morning. Well, I was already working out at 5 a.m. in the morning every morning. And that was without a major commute. That was like 15 minute commute. So when I moved to an hour plus commute, well, How much earlier can you really get up at that point? Are you sleeping? In fact, no, that's not working. So the job is keeping me from training the way I want to. The job is keeping me from spending more time with my children because you're either getting up and on the road before they wake up 
or you're barely getting back into town, you know, during rush hour before their practices. So my children were suffering. Technically, money was suffering. I mean, I was making at the, the top end for what I did in higher education. But when it comes to consulting and other work outside of higher ed, that suffered because everything was sucked dry by the commute. And so once I saw that the the job during the pandemic showed me how life did not have to be that way. And so people started returning back to campus and I got to a place where I was starting to have major anxiety driving on the road, even just going in a couple of days a week, not even the full week. And so that then started affecting my mental health until I decided, you know what, I'm making a decision and it's not even a like a hard, fast, difficult decision because this was something I wanted to do anyway. I'm just pushing the timeline up on it. And so decided to do it. And I know that, you know, everyone looked at me like she has truly lost it, um, but turned in my resignation letter. My last day on, in the office was going to be uh, right before Labor Day. And I did not, as much as I adored my colleagues and coworkers and I missed them, I did not miss the work because I was already so busy with the consulting work that it just ended up replacing itself as far as the time and energy. So that's kind of the connection, but it, and at first felt like jumping out of a huge window because of, you know, you got to have health benefits and you got to have all these other things that people don't think about. But um, after I did it and didn't look back, I was very grateful um, and humbled that I was in a place to do it. Mm-hmm. Now, that leads me to thinking about the, the you know, uh, there's so many people we have the great resignation, quote unquote, happening right now. And, you know, a lot of people just want to walk out of their jobs. It sounds as though you did a lot of consulting and stuff on the side before you walked away. So talk about setting yourself up to walk away. Yeah, no, that's a great point, because um, I I listened to another business podcast. It's mostly men. But I think what's interesting is that they've uh, pulled themselves up by their bootstraps, if you will, um, where they started with, you know, business cards, and now they're all millionaires. Um, And what I appreciated about their podcast, they talked about how you start to incrementally grow. So for example, I would um, incrementally grow where I would do maybe three hours of consulting a week, and then I would grow a little bit more into five and et cetera. And so Before the pandemic, I was already doing consulting work on the side, whether it was strategic planning or DEI work for folks. Once we got to the pandemic, I was still working probably 10 hours for the university, but I was also working additional hours on my own consulting work. And one of the things that I tried to do, even as I started entertaining the idea of leaving academia, was that I started securing instead of these one-offs, you know, right where it's like, you know, this one speech here, this one workshop there, this type of thing. Instead of doing that, I actually started securing more of the longer term contracts. So at that point, long term for me was like a year or more type of thing Um, or something where people kept me on retainer, for example, or um, a coaching retainer where I would have executive coaching set aside where I was working with people over a longer period of time. And so that helped me to feel more secure over the long term rather than feeling like, oh, my goodness, month to month, month to month. Um, Instead of that, it was a a little more um, longer term. And that was a very conscious effort to do that uh, rather than those one-offs. And I feel like it made the organization more effective as well um, with a longer term uh, commitment. 
Yeah, for sure. I think that's actually a great point for anyone thinking about the consulting or coaching where it's very easy to have the one-off option. I think trying to figure out the plan for what does almost like a subscription look like? What does yeah a year of services look like? And having that really like spelled out so it's very easy to see for the client. I think that's such an important idea because you're exactly right. Like I spent years panicked about like, okay, you know, I need to fill this month. And then, you know, as I'm trying to write enough articles for this month, I'm also now trying to like pitch for next month and the month after, like, it's impossible to ever get ahead unless you have a couple of those projects that just continue month after month. So I love that. Um, And resigning. Okay. It's very easy when you hate your job and you hate your boss and you hate everything about it, but it sounds like you had, you know, good people you were working with. Um, any advice for someone writing that resignation email or having that resignation conversation? Because I know I just sent one for just a little writing thing I was doing just very casual hours hours slaving over how to write this stupid email and figuring out the exact right words for it and deleting it and being like, maybe I should just keep doing the job because I can't write this email. Yeah. Yeah. No, you're, you're bringing up a great point because, you know, that's one of the things I've committed to stopping to think about how I want to flesh it out because a lot of what you were mentioning about the great resignation and writing that resignation letter a lot of what I saw out there, whether it was on LinkedIn or whether it was on Medium or whatever outlet, it was coming from a completely opposite place from where I was coming from because they were, uh, you know, maybe not in the most ideal role or not with the most ideal supervisor or not with an organization that they aligned values with, you know, lots of different things that did not work for them. I think it's telling when people like me resign because we're in the ideal, right? So I, other than the commute, I'll, I'll take that out of the equation. But other than the commute, I was at an incredible university in an incredible department, had a incredible supervisor that I still talk to to this day on a regular basis, making the money that I wanted to make with the title and the role and the big office with the windows and all of that, the whole ideal picture. And I still decided that this is not for me. And so with that, I thought, you know, this is really interesting because when you write that resignation letter, I think sometimes we all, including myself, overthink it by thinking that the letter needs to be in. Here's a explanation of why we're leaving, thanking you for all you've done for me. And at this point, now it's becoming groveling. It's like it's becoming groveling. And so for me, mine was actually very short. It was, yes, thank you for all the opportunities up to this point. This has been a phenomenal experience. I have decided to build on this experience and move forward to other things that, frankly, the university can't offer. I look forward to working with you all in the future, working with whomever might replace me, and would love uh, to let other folks know that they should come here to work. And so I tried to leave it, and, and, and all of that was true. Every word of it was true. And so I feel like, you know, Let's be clear on we're leaving because I think the challenge becomes we make it extremely personal when someone leaves organizations. Like I am personally offended that Molly left my organization when in fact it's like, hold up. 
I'm thrilled for Molly because she's growing in the direction that she wants to grow into. She is hopefully some situations aren't that way, but she's hopefully resigning by choice because she has a great opportunity, not by force. There's so many different things around the pleasures of resigning. And I didn't understand that until when I was starting to work at University of Maryland. And I had a phenomenal supervisor there. Um, I also was pregnant with both of my sons at the university. And so he just really demonstrated inclusion and belonging and making me feel as comfortable as possible during that time, which I know is very difficult for people who give birth and work um, outside of the home. And what was so profound for me was that every time someone resigned from our office to go on to the next thing or to the bigger, the better, the hopeful, whatever it is, he rejoiced with them. You know, he threw them a party. He wanted, he was interested in, oh, what's happening next? How can I support you next? Rather than, oh Lord, I don't know what we're going to do without Molly. I mean, can you hang on for a few more months? You know, all of these things. And I'm like, why aren't we rejoicing when people move into the areas they want to move into? And so that's what my resignation letter included. Um, No, it wasn't perfect, obviously, but I just took a more appreciative approach to the resignation rather than, you know, we're putting a nail into a coffin type thing, you know, um, and, and I'm really grateful that I even had the opportunity to consider to consider resigning because there are people that uh, financially or for other reasons just can't. And I do understand those reasons as well. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I'm like, now where, where was this a year ago when I literally spent hundreds of dollars on a therapy appointment to write this exact email to another place? You'd think I'd be better at it a year later. I'm not, but <laughs> whole other conversation. (laughs) Okay, here's the deal. You want to take control of your health, of your life, but honestly, who has the time to go into the doctor, get the requisition for all the blood work, and then go to the lab and actually have that blood drawn, then wait weeks for the doctor to get back to you with the results? No, absolutely not. Inside Tracker is the way to go. And bonus, you can do it from the comfort of your own home with their mobile blood draw. It is so easy. Oh my gosh, so convenient, so safe, so reliable. All you have to do is when you order your Inside Tracker panel, you actually just add the mobile blood draw option and then boom, suddenly you have a lab tech at your house at a time that works for you to take your blood. We did this last month and honestly, it was the easiest experience I have ever had with blood draws in my life so convenient and then the turnaround on the results is so quick and instantly you get this whole view of what is going on inside you with all of the important biomarkers that you need as an athlete as an entrepreneur as a go-getter so definitely definitely check them out save time in your day add time to your life with inside trackers mobile blood draw and if you visit insidetracker.com backslash feisty you get 20 percent off today that's insidetracker.com backslash feisty to get 20 percent off today On the note of money, though, I mean, you know, going into business for yourself and especially in, you know, any kind of these like consulting businesses or, you know, I'm going to I'm going to throw myself in here too. writing like the numbers that people and speaking the numbers that people throw out. Right. Like it can be anywhere from like, we're not going to pay you to do this thing. Uh, You're just going to come because. That's that's what we're going to ask you to do to, you know, oh, yeah, hundred thousand dollars. Like, no question. No problem. How do you how do you start? How do you even start setting your prices? Oh, that's a great 
Good question. I love that question because let me tell you, uh, <laughs> let me tell you how many fumbles I've had in regards to that and then trying to, to get it right. So when I first started out, because again, going back to academia, academia is a teaching and learning environment. Now, we don't think about, which we should, we should think about teacher salaries and professor salaries and so forth. I'm not going to go there in this podcast. But given that, you know, given that we sometimes forget that, yes, people are compensated for their information and their efforts. But then when we get to topics like mine that are a little more altruistic, like diversity, equity and inclusion, there's this assumption that because this is good work and because this is humanistic work, that it should be, oh, this should be free. This is the right thing to do. This should be close to free. Um, and once you start to, because I've spent the 25, 26 years of my career trying to remind people, this is a professionalized experience. This is diversity, equity, and inclusion that not everyone can do. Yes, everyone should be involved and everyone should play their role. But when it comes to leading and strategizing and doing some of that work, that is a profession. And so just because you care about it, that doesn't mean everyone can do it. And for those that can do it, they need to be compensated for it. So given that, that's when I started to kind of get to a place where money was important um, and not in a money gouging way, because I literally, I, I know today is uh, giving day, but I literally just finished my philanthropic giving for the year. It's not about Shauna receiving every single penny of every single thing. That's not what I'm saying. But kind of as my mother used to say all the time, teach people how to treat you, right? You have to know your value and how you want to charge. And so given that, when I first started out, I remember so vividly. So I was still working at the university and someone asked me to do a workshop. And it was a workshop where I didn't have to create any new content. I already had the, the presentation, the workshop, the activities, all of that set up, ready to go. And I think they paid me like it might have been three or four hundred bucks. It, it wasn't that much, but it was more than what I was getting regularly. And so I realized, oh, my God, these people are willing to write a check for information that I already know and have. So they can't be the only ones out there doing it. Cue to Shauna to go fill out LLC information because I wanted to go ahead and register my business just in, on a whim that this turns into a business later, right? I wasn't even thinking about this being real. I just did it as a whim, right? All right, so fast forward, the very same workshop, very same content, didn't change one letter on the PowerPoint. Someone from another industry outside of higher education was willing to then pay, going from three figures to four figures, the exact same information. And so, and then it continued to grow. And so with that, one of the things that I did, um, there are a lot of folks in the DEI marketplace, if you will, that do what I do when it comes to business and when it comes to, to fitness as well, where I'm good friends with them. I'm good colleagues with them. And so I asked them, can we have a confidential conversation here? These are my rates right now. What are your rates? Are we comparable? We we have comparable education, experience, background, et cetera. Should we both be charging more? What's going on here exactly? And so that was how I first started doing that work. After I saw the numbers grow quickly, I started connecting with a close circle of colleagues that were doing similar work to ask them what their pricing or, or uh, fee schedule was. 
Oh, that is such, that is so smart. That is like the best advice right there. We could stop right now and it would be like, how are we not talking about this? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. We just weren't having a conversation about like it was held close to vest. And so, so that was one of the first steps I did when it came to pricing. Then after that, I realized, oh, this is interesting. I'm starting to have clients from various industries and all of those industries have different understandings of budgets. (laughs) So let me give you an example of that. Um, If I'm working with the local uh, school PTA, I know they have minimal money. This is a public school with, you know, fundraising. They're not going to come out of the gate with five, six figures, right? So I know that's going to be a smaller fee. So I need to think about that and education in its own fee schedule, for example, as far as an industry is concerned. But then <laughs> I, I used to jokingly say that I've never worked with rocket scientists before. I've actually now worked with rocket scientists before. And when I saw, this is going to be funny, Molly. I saw something where it was showing the um, the salaries because all the salaries were public because this is federal government money. And I saw that an executive assistant was making a quarter million dollars a year salary. I said, mm, I can add some more zeros to this proposal because their pay schedule is completely different from what other industries might be. And so that's when I started again, going back to other folks and asking them, hey, we talked about fee schedules and so forth. How do you parse it out based on industry? So do you have a fee schedule for education and nonprofit, a fee schedule for corporate, a fee schedule? We're, we're breaking it down now into various fee schedules because, you know, some people at first were like, well, I don't see how it's fair where you're charging corporate, you know, a uh, uh, 10K for a keynote that you gave to the PTA for 500 Let me just say, I believe strongly in Robin Hood rules, meaning that it would be different if every single penny was put in my pocket, et cetera. Oftentimes, I use those as leverage because I can then say, okay, corporate paid me 20K to do this. That means I can afford to do the little PTO that can't afford to pay me as much because if you spread out that money across industries, that's when it's fair. And so that's how I kind of started thinking about the money piece. I love that. You've mentioned fee schedule a couple of times. I'd love you to talk about the the idea of hourly versus like projects. So when when someone, you know, approaches you about wanting to do work, how are you looking at it? Are you thinking about how many hours is this going to take me? Or are you thinking the scope of the project? Oh, oh, oh. so let me tell you how Shauna has messed up on this before, because um, here's one piece. For a good bit of my work, much of it is responding to RFPs. So responding to those requests for proposals where they have very clear delineations of what information they want in order for me or Gold Enterprises to be considered for the work. Sometimes it's simply a requirement. They want to know Molly is going to be working on phase one of this project for 20 hours at 250 an hour. And that that's how it's laid out in the proposal, if you will. There are other organizations that just simply want to lump sum. So they just want to know first phase is going to cost me five grand. Second phase is going to cost me 30, et cetera. And so I prefer to do more of the project work um, because that allows me to really um, be compensated regardless of how long it takes me to do the work. 
But I also understand that some projects simply require it, you know, whether it's federal government, state, some nonprofits require it. So I, I'm clear as to there's certain people that need it, certain people that don't. There have been many times where I undercut myself where, let's say, for example, I said this portion of the project is going to take me 20 hours at 250 an hour. And technically, it only took me 10 hours to do. Well, I'm going to be honest that it only took me 10 hours. But look at the funding that they already had approved that was on the table ready for me to take that I couldn't because it was based on hourly. So I prefer to do project bases, as you mentioned, but I, I've messed it up many times, many times. <laughs> yeah, I always struggle with the hourly because part of me is like, well, my my hourly work is a lot faster than someone who has, you know, 15 years less experience than I have. So that's right. Am I like losing money now because I'm efficient? Like it would be very difficult for me to have like pitched. I admit I would I would have had the I don't know that I would have had the integrity you have. I probably would have been like, nope, that took me 20 hours. <laughs> if I'm being totally honest. Right, right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, okay. It's really funny to me that even in the beginning of this money conversation, you actually mentioned, you know, today as we're recording it, it is Giving Tuesday. But the fact that you had to mention, like, it's not that I necessarily want all of the money for myself and for my life. I do give, like, women have this issue where we just hate saying that we just want to make money and that we deserve to make money. And I think this is something that came out at Outspoken. And it's something that's, I just really want to highlight. You would never hear a guy say like, I I get paid, you know, good money for my stuff, but don't worry. I'm not really making a lot of money before you like think that I'm making a lot of money. I'm not making a lot of money. <laughs> so talk to me about coming to terms with making money. Oh, good question. Good question. So I I don't feel like I have a huge aversion to making money necessarily. I mean, I'm, I feel very grateful. I bought a new house this year. You know, my boys are able to do pretty much what they want to do. They get to go on vacation, you know, that type of thing. And I love doing that for them. Um, I also feel very strongly, too, that um, when it comes to my line of work, you can't say you're about diversity, equity, and inclusion by only the doing and the service. There are things that just literally cost money. So I may care about the domestic violence shelter down the road from me, and I'm willing to provide them consulting services for X, Y, and Z, but they still got to pay for the lights to turn on, and they still got to pay for the facilities, and they still got to pay for food and clothing and da, 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 da. And so I just feel like that's a philanthropy should be part of the business plan as an overarching portfolio, because if not, and, and it's not even about the percentage, it's more so about if this is my company values and I value inclusion and I value protecting people that um, are usually left out purposefully and intentionally and historically, then I can't just walk in and be like, here I am, the, the gifted quote unquote expert on XYZ, you're welcome. Uh, here in, in the uh, Maryland, D.C. area, our uh, electric company is called Baltimore, uh, Baltimore Gas and Electric, BGE. BGE does not care that a consultant has come in to talk about inclusivity. They want the bill paid. They need the bill paid. And so given that, I just feel like it's part of the portfolio. Um, and, and so I do the both and. And trust me, I at the end of the year, I don't come down to where I'm at zero balance because I gave all of it away, but I did give significantly just because I feel like that's alignment. That's an alignment with your values. And if you're not aligned with your values, then what are we doing here? Right. Um, and, and to your point, that's part of the reason why this year, I mean, this is so timely. 
this year I was thinking about applying for uh, B Corp certification. And I'm still like on the fence regarding that because part of me is, no, I want to create generational wealth. You know, I want my kids to be the first ones to not be first generation college students and leave college without debt and, you know, all these other things. If I apply for B Corp, then that may prevent me from being able to do that for my family and being able to give in the ways that I want to. So as much as I'm more than happy to open up the books and be this extremely ethical organization, I don't want that to limit my opportunities for generational wealth and giving to people in ways that I choose to um, and making the money that I choose to. So Shauna's not the last doctor of the family and my sons, I'm loving my sons literally from the grave because they have what they need. Th those are things that are priorities to me as well. So I, I hear you and money ick is real. I mean, very real. That is such a beautiful way of looking at it. I love that. I think that is that is the way to be thinking about it. The alignment, the values, perfect. Brilliant. So good. On the note of uh, asking for, for what you're worth here, have you ever had someone push back against what your proposed dollar figure was? And if so, how did you handle it? And, you know, when, when do you walk away? Oh, great question. Well, you know, <laughs> I had to learn over the years to, so even if, if people went right now to my website, it's not all fancy. It's not all pretty, any of that. It's just there as a holding space to make sure people are aware of me. It is a great website. Side note, it is a great website. <laughs> head to the website, head to the website. But when people fill out the contact form on the website, I do ask them about their budget, you know, because so before I didn't do that, though, that that's why I think your question is so profound. Before it was, oh, I was kind of out there dangling and just throwing a random number out there that may or may not work or I'm undercutting myself type of thing. Um, and so now I preemptively ask, what's the budget? Um, or I'll ask, what have you paid comparable speakers or consultants that did similar work? Usually men, usually white men, usually people that don't look like Shauna and Molly, right? So so I will ask those questions, right? And so that gives me a great point of view. Um, so I've I've been in situations where <laughs> I heard this from one of my good mentor friends who's a millionaire. She said, Shauna, if they say yes too quickly to your number, then you left money on the table. I've always heard that consistently. If I put a number out there and they have to go away and think about it, they're either going to find the money or they'll come back and give you a number that's reasonable, but at the upper edges of what they have to budget. Either way, you're coming out better than undercutting yourself. And so that's what I've, I've tried to do thus far, but it's it's not a perfect model at all. But that's what I've tried to do so far. You almost need a spreadsheet that's like the, the name of the organization, what you budgeted and like how fast they agreed to it. So that way you can like reference it. Be like, oh, OK, yeah, the school board, but 30 seconds. And they said yes. to <laughs> Exactly. 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 Well, and, and now I will tell you a quick aside. I loved that I had a white female ally in an organization. So it was a very large organization that reached out to me and said, hey, you know, we've heard you speak before. We want you to come to speak at this organization. Um, could you put together a proposal for us? And so I put together a proposal. Didn't even really think about the costing. I just put down what was in my fee schedule. Ding, ding, ding. So I put that there, right? So put that number there, sent it off to her. She replied back and she said, um, can I give you a call real quick? She didn't put it in writing. Smart. Uh, she said, can I give you a call? So she called me and she said, Shauna, 
I just wanted to let you know, you would be the first woman speaking in this capacity for our series. And you would definitely be the the first person of color to speak during this series. This is the budget that we've paid men and other folks up to this point. I think you should bump your number up to that. So my proposal didn't even get past her desk and she named that. I went back, tweaked it, sent it back to her and we ended up sealing the deal within a couple of days. But the point was, I, I could have undercut myself probably five figures if she had not said anything to me. And I was so appreciative and I called her and I asked her, um, what are some things you care about? And, you know, are there any things? That you, and she rattled out some things she cares about. I think it was like a, um, she loved dogs and especially the ones that are, um, the, the dogs that are kind of in rehab where they have braces on their legs or things like that. I don't have the right language here. And so she mentioned that. And so I took some of that money and donated it to a charity that she cared about and then sent her the notice back to let her know just as a thank you. But again, that's what you do when you find good allies. First of all, be a good ally. But when you find good allies, remember to thank them because that can really um, make or break your fees. And I've gotten referrals from her since and all that. So it's important to do that work. I love that. Also, side note, holidays coming up. I feel like that was an excellent like gift suggestion is the idea of like donations to charities that uh, people really care about. I think that's that's a great way to uh, to celebrate the holidays. As we're... You know, one thing that I've started, this is only the what second or third year I've been doing it. So what I've been doing now is around November 1st ish. I'll send or or my chief of staff, she sends out an email to partners, thought partners, allies, business partners, anyone that I've worked with closely throughout the year. It's probably a short list, maybe 10 or 15 people. And I'll just flat out ask them, you know, give me your top three nonprofit organizations that you really care about that are important to you. They'll send us, you know, a list of, of things back. I'll make some decisions and you know, Molly wants to give to um, the American Breast Cancer Association. I'll give a little bit to them, you know, et cetera. And I'll do it if if it's possible. I'll do it in their name. And, you know, I still try to send them a little something, but I always do that because I want to hear what they care about. And I want to make sure they realize that this goes beyond gold enterprises. I mean, we do good work and I want to keep doing good work, but this is my thank you. Um and it helps me to get to know them better too, which is always great. So I love that. That's so smart. Um, okay. Last question on money before we move on here. Uh, I just kind of wanted you to like riff on like the hidden costs, because I think like we kind of automatically like say a hundred dollars an hour is what you, you want to charge. You're not making a hundred dollars an hour. Exactly. There are so many hidden costs. You're exactly right. Well, and you know, <laughs> the hidden cost of business I joke, I jokingly say it all the time. I'm paying for the email account. Okay. That's what I'm paying for. And so, you know, and, and it's true. It's a, it's a joke, but it's also true. The, all the quote unquote invisible hidden costs of business. So for example, um, you know, each year your business taxes that have to be paid to keep your business active. And I know, I know, I just cringe when I see the notice, but you got to take, pay those business taxes. Um, let's say, of course, you're using, a website or uh, several email accounts for people that work for or with you. You got to pay for those. That may seem small, but they add up over time. Business insurance. Sometimes you can't even submit a proposal or an RFP or what have you if you don't have a certain amount of business insurance in order to cover you on certain things. 
Um, goodness, what else? I, I use a platform called monday.com because we work with a number of different projects. And so it helps me with project management in each team that's on the project because I have so many 1099s. That cost each year. Calendly, I mean, all of it, all of it costs. And so that was one of the things um, that I had to learn and I'm still learning and I'm making some adjustments for 2023 around working quite well with my 1099s and making sure they're getting paid based on their skill set. And at the same time, not becoming a pass-through organization because I'm the one taking on the risk and I'm the one taking on all of those invisible costs. So yes, I want Molly to make $250 an hour, but that that may mean I need to charge the client $300 an hour to cover the invisible cost of us working together. And I'm perfectly okay with that. So yes, it's a bunch of stuff we don't think about. Ton of stuff we don't think about. Yeah. So when you're setting your prices, don't just think about your time in that hour. Think about all the money that's going into the business that you're running. Yeah. All the software, everything. And then yeah, budget for the, the tax part of it. Uh, because yeah, like uh, up here. So I moved to Canada a few years ago, did not know that when I worked with Canadian companies, I needed to charge uh, the harmonized sales tax to stuff. Owed a lot of money. Not great. <laughs> right, right, right. But like right. That was my problem. I had to figure it out. And I did. And it's fine. But but speaking of that, though, one of the things that I learned a, a couple of years in, and I'm not saying I have this perfect either, but it's something for all of us to consider. Um, here in the U.S., I'm in Maryland. When you set up your business account, you can also set up uh, you can set up a business checking and a business savings. And every uh, check that I would get in on certain things or transfer so forth, I'd put a little percentage of that into the savings account so that when it was tax time coming, that I just pull it out of the savings and I don't miss it and I don't feel it as much. Um, and so I've started doing that a little bit, even if it's like 10%. So, you know, let's say, you know, you got $1,000 for some work, slide 100 over in that savings and let that build up until tax the tax person cometh, if you will. And then at least you have something. It may not be all that you need but at least you have something there. Um, and so this year I was really blessed and fortunate that I'd slid enough money over the savings that I had enough to cover um, when the tax came and I didn't have to dip into the regular checking like business checking account. So yeah. Yeah. Because work like ours, it's not super steady. So, you know, you're kind of doing guesswork throughout the year to figure out what it is that you're going to owe, because it's not just like a percentage of you, of the money you're bringing in because you also get to deduct stuff. So stuff comes out. So it's, Unless you're working with an account that you can pay like, you know, 10 grand a year plus to like let you know this stuff month after month. Like, I don't know about you, but I work with one at tax time to figure it out. So, yeah, my my strategy is just like hurl money at it during the year and like hope that I've overpaid. <laughs> not the not the world's best uh, financial advice, but I think like the point of you're going to have to pay some taxes. Don't uh, don't be like just charging enough to feed yourself. There you go. There you go. That's right. So CPAs and tax experts in the U.S. and Canada that are listening to this podcast right now. Yes. Write into Molly and let us know. Give us some really good. Call Molly, us. Give us yeah. a call. <laughs> call us and let us know exactly what we should do. But that's what we've been doing thus far to keep us out of trouble. So, you exactly. know, or, or else we're going to be uh, recording this podcast from a not so nice place because we haven't paid our taxes. This is our so one phone please. call. 
<laughs> one phone call podcast we're recording the podcast girl exactly so yes yes let's 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 get the professionals to give us some advice <laughs> i like it i like it. and we do actually have one coming on soon um but also now i'm like you know that would be a great podcast like the <laughs> <laughs> oh, add that to your questions. Add that to your questions. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> so good. Um, okay. So shifting gears totally here, just like we're going in a different direction now. Um, <laughs> right, right. So a lot of our listeners are starting very small businesses, right? It's one or maybe two people, or they're probably, you know, thinking solopreneurs. They're not hiring outside help. So we know, you know, when it comes to diversity, equity, inclusion, the number one thing is in your hiring and who you're bringing on. But how can people who aren't necessarily hiring other people still keep DEI at top of mind and actually, you know, try to be good allies, try to be doing the, the right thing, basically? Oh, excellent, excellent, excellent point. Um, so I love the question because you're right. Not None of us started out with a huge staff and that type of thing. Like even right now, people ask me the question, you know, well, Shauna, you seem to be running this big, huge, da-da-da. Enterprise is only a name, boo-boo. Okay, gold enterprise is only a name. I am literally the only full-time person on my payroll. Um, I do have a chief of staff that handles all my scheduling because I'm the first one to mess up schedules. Um, I have a part-time assistant. Everyone else is is part-time 1099 folks. And so given that it looks like a massive undertaking, but actually we have people that are kind of putting the puzzle pieces together, if you will. So Given that, I realized that most of us started in the beginning with just us. When I first started, it was literally just me. And my first hire was a friend of mine from college who could handle my bookkeeping and taxes because I finally got to the place that Shauna, with her non-math calculating self, was spending more time even doing the invoicing. I could have made the money quicker. Like it, it would have taken me eight hours to do invoicing when I could make that amount of money in an hour and a half to two hours to pay someone else to do it rather just hand it off. And so that was how I kind of started growing everything. And so given that, when it comes to thinking about diversity and inclusion, a few things to think about, um, always think about um, having some type of advisory group. So even if you can't hire that woman, that man, that person that's disabled, whatever identity group that you don't represent, think about having your advisory group. And I used to call it my kitchen cabinet, right? You know how a president has a, a, a cabinet of folks that are, you know, vice president of this and that and deputy and, you know, all of that department, secretary of this. You want your kitchen cabinet in place that may just be an informal group of people that come from different perspectives to help to advise you on your business moves to make sure they're as inclusive as possible. So that's where I would start if you have no money. Get, get your kitchen cabinet together. And those are people that can come together rather quickly. Um, and then the other thing that I would suggest, especially if you're using technology, um, show that in your technology. Make sure that everything that you send out is accessible. Um, I remember when I first started uh, doing a bit more executive coaching after I got certified was that it used to be kind of standard practice where when you were coaching people, you would send a emailed or written report back to them. I realized based on whether it's vision issues or whether it's neurodiversity, whatever it may be, that may not be the best mode for certain people. So now I ask them, would you like written feedback? Would you like uh, a voice note as feedback? Would you like um, a video 
of feedback that I put that's um, that's confidential and blocked on my YouTube channel. So you're the only one with the link and you can go see the feedback, whatever it may be. So what's your modes of communication? Are those inclusive even as one person? Um, so that's some, something I would think about. Um, and then the last thing I would think about too, most businesses have to engage with vendors in order to do what they do. Whether it's, you know, you're buying those running shoes or you're finding that kid or whatever it may. I don't care if it's a, a pen and a piece of paper. You can still take the effort to go seek out um, woman-owned, minority-owned, LGBT-owned, veteran-owned businesses that can provide you with those pens and that paper, right? And so thinking about that, I, I think that would be great. And And one of the easiest ways to start thinking about that Go look at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Go look at the uh, Black Chamber of Commerce. That's an entire website, LGBT Chamber of Commerce. They all have those chambers of commerce that are really a hub. So you can go ahead and tap into a list of vendors, businesses, and organizations that provide exactly what you need. And you already know they're certified businesses and they're certified based on identity groups. So that might be like three things to start out with, even if you are a solo entrepreneur. Yeah. I love that. That's fantastic. Um, and so in in the DEI space, I know obviously it's it's kind of a wacky time in American politics and life. Oh, yes. um, mm-hmm. It's pretty much impossible to not be dealing with with some level of haters or people who just refuse to say that there's any kind of problem. Um, have you had to deal with any negativity on the on the interwebs or or in real life? Uh, oh, in what you do and and how how do you how does one handle that? Oh my gosh, let me tell you. Well, uh, <laughs> so let me go back to your question earlier. I'm going to link these two together. Your question about the resignation letter, right? So interestingly enough, yes, I provided that resignation letter to you know my supervisor, HR, you know all the official channels and so forth. I also sent a very pointed email out to my close friends and colleagues at work, letting them know, giving them a bit more of the background and um, also letting them know that, no, I had not experienced anything bad at the university or any of that. So no, nothing implicating them or the organization at all. But I let them know that I know I've only been here at the university for a handful of years. But prior to that, I spent years of, um, people vandalizing my car because I wanted to stand up for LGBT student rights um, at a religious college, for example, or I had a major um, issue or a concern with trans athletes not being honored at a particular institution or on and on and on of things that I had done where I, there had been years of backlash in certain ways. And so I gave them a little bit of a history of that. And they were grateful, you know, for my work there, but also realized that my experience with them at that university was icing on a cake that was already baked, right? I had already done the work and this happened to be a pleasant experience, but not all of my experiences were pleasant. And so given that um, (laughs) on Unfazed, shameless plug for Unfazed podcast, um, we had a particular episode called Energy Vampires. And that still stands as one of my favorite episodes because it really forces me and others um, to think about where you want to place your energy. And if you want to place your energy in dealing with those folks, that's one thing, but also realize the opportunity cost and the energy cost that's required. So you might be 
you know, spending the lion's share of your time trying to convince Molly of XYZ when there's 30 other people that are really ready to go. They're just waiting on your direction and instruction. And so that's where I've started to kind of shift with the resistors. Um, there's very little that I have not seen. Um, I had individuals that, you know, threatened my infant son when I was working at an institution because I worked really hard to make sure that a um, a realistic Native American powwow occurred on my campus because they never had one before. And I believe strongly in Native American experiences. So I've got a laundry list of haters, resistors. I would suggest cowards um, in those ways because they were not willing to confront me directly, but um, instead try to initiate fear around those topics. So yes, it does happen, but I also make sure that I'm very clear on what I'm going to engage in and what I'm not going to engage in. Um, and another funny Molly. So everyone that I work with in my consulting firm also has um, a certification in change management. And change management, you know, obviously when it comes to DEI work, it's inherently change. You know, we're moving and changing, context changing, et cetera. Well, <laughs> there's a model that they use where I won't get into the whole thing, but it talks about being aware of the change that's needed, the desire to change, and then we move on into knowledge and ability, et cetera, et cetera. That desire piece. I had two white guys teaching this class. And I stopped them at the desire piece because I said, it's interesting that you mentioned desire and resistance because I realized there are some people that just simply need more information in order to desire the change and then they move forward with it. There are other people, you can give them all the information on the planet and they will never desire to change. So what do we do with those folks? And they were like, deer in the headlights, like, um, never thought about people resisting. I'm like, hello, I'm talking about racism, sexism. Right, exactly. Homophobia. I'm talking about all of these hard issues. I'm not talking about moving from one accounting system to another accounting system in your damn business. I'm talking about real stuff that affects real life and death for a lot of people. So how do you handle that as part of the change management system? And they didn't have an answer for me, right? And so I came to a place where, when it comes to resistors, haters, et cetera, um, resistors, there's a few things that we can do with them. We can give them more information and leave it there. Just plant the seed. We don't need to persuade or any of that. Just give them more information. Or we can contain them. So making sure that they do not, if, if I have the, Tans, the Tasmanian devil in my house right now, I would contain him in one room so he doesn't tear up the rest of my damn house, okay? So that's what I'm doing. I'm containing the Tasmanian de devil. So containing, or the third way is change their location. Now that may mean, that literally, yes, may mean firing some people. However, it also could be the result of good coaching. What happens in any other situation, even when it's not diversity work, and I'm coaching Molly, and she gets to a place where Molly realizes, oh, my values don't align with this organization anymore. I think I need to make some moves. I haven't fired her. I haven't kicked her out. I haven't embarrassed her. I haven't shamed her. All I've simply done is to hold up Molly's values in comparison to the organization's values, which leaves her to see the stark differences, and then she can make her own choice. And that's how I manage the haters and the dissenters. And that comes from a place where when I was working in academia, where you had tenured faculty members that had no reason to leave. And I got several of them out of there. 
because I showed the difference in value. So I think we can do that in, in every industry, in my opinion. Okay. This is, this is kind of an interesting thing. I was going to ask, I wanted to ask about making time for the podcast, making time for training. And this also kind of comes to when, when you're doing this work in the DEI space, and it's also like, obviously very important to you as a human, um, Yes, obviously. (laughs) How, how do you, do you ever check out? Like when you're in the pool, are you still thinking about this stuff? Like, how do you, how do you just kind of like breathe? (laughs) Oh, that's a good question. Well, let me tell you, it is very hard to turn it off. Um, I, I would suggest that I don't have many, if any superpowers, but DEI is one of mine. And so given that, it's very hard to turn it off. It's kind of like that superhero that has x-ray vision. And so they can't not see it, you know, that type of thing. I feel that way oftentimes with DEI. It's like, I can't not see that three houses on my street have a Black Lives Matter flag and two of them have a pride flag and another one has Confederate Dixie flag. Like I can't not see that, right? And so given that, um, that's when it makes it very hard to check out. And so a few things that I do, which I'm still working on it and my chief of staff is kicking my tail, making me do it. Um, Like I mentioned in the post yesterday about December, when I go on vacation, trying to log out 99.99999% of the time. If something is a true emergency, it is only coming from my parents or my children if they're not with me. Other than that, I literally don't need to answer the phone for anybody, right? And so kind of cushioning myself in those ways. Um, When it comes to endurance sport, that's the exact reason why I came to endurance sport originally. I've been a runner now for, let's see, my son is 11. I started when, yeah, so about 10 years. So been in the endurance sport space for at least 10 years. I started using endurance sport as a um, for my mental health, especially after having my son, because baby blues are very real. Postpartum depression is very real and also dealing with the bullshit of DEI every day. So, you know, I know a lot of people, for example, are, you know, they're taken aback. Oh, my God, someone said the N word in X, Y, Z. Well, when you're the DEI person, you hear about those types of instances constantly every day. None of it even surprises you, but it still tears down at who you are and how you care about the world and other people. And so I've often used training in that way. I've used time off, vacations, staycations in that way. I love to laugh. So anything that makes me laugh, I mean, I will get on TikTok and Instagram and waste my life looking at something funny because I just need that reprieve. And so that that's how I've done it over time. But it is like a switch that I need to turn on and off. Um, I will share, um, yes, everyone's aware of George Floyd in 2020. Um, but prior to that, here in our area, in the Baltimore area, you know, we had the murder of Freddie Gray. And so George Floyd was almost like a deja vu type of experience for us in this area because we had already witnessed something very similar. And so uh, having two black male sons, I had to turn stuff off. Like after Freddie Gray happened, I started having nightmares of my two sons laying in caskets and me going to funerals. No, cut that shit off. Um, And so I've started to create thicker boundaries. And let me just say, I also believe in therapy and prayer. Okay. Both and, both and. So I I have a wonderful black female therapist that is incredible. And so I just kind of package all that as my system for turning things off. And on the practical side of training, you mentioned, oh, dark 30. Are we through the oh, dark 30? How do we make time? How do we prioritize the time for the training? 
Oh, let me tell you. Okay, so pre-pandemic, Shauna was the O-Dark 30 girl. I'm talking about trained for 470.3s, countless other distance triathlon. I learned how to swim um, as when I was a very pregnant, what, 36-year-old? <laughs> so all of that I did at zero dark 30 workouts, right? My first triathlon was when my youngest son was six weeks old. Okay, so all of that happened with zero dark 30 because I had to get up in the morning and it wasn't really an option. If you wanted this badly, you had to get up because the rest of the day runs away from you. Um, when you're a person that works a full-time job and you um, have your children in activities and set, et cetera, after school, the peace in the valley usually only happens early morning. And so that's how I trained pre-pandemic. Now, fast forwarding, you know, my sons are in various activities. They're in drama, they're in multiple youth sports, et cetera. Um, but Thank goodness for work from home and being my own entrepreneur now, right? Instead of the, the zero dark 30, four, five o'clock in the morning. Let me tell you, Molly, when I was training for um, a, a full marathon, there was a time where I literally had 10 miles already in the bag by 7 a.m. and still got to work at 8.30. Like literally, literally. Now, because of the pandemic, I started realizing when we were all on quarantine, I was still working out regularly, et cetera. But when I got to the place where I realized the aha moment was, oh, I have to get up at five o'clock in the morning and I don't know how long this is going to last. So let me enjoy it while I can. So quote unquote, early morning training started then moving to seven. And now what's really cool is when it comes to training, workouts, et cetera, even just a little mental health walk, you know, I find the sweet spots for it to happen. So I might block off, you know, an hour and a half in the middle of the day to make it happen. Or my really sweet spot, especially for swim, ah, oh, my sweet spot, the early birds that I used to be, they're getting out of the pool at seven. Aha. Ah, Look, I'm talking about empty lane, empty pool. Okay. Nobody in there but me. Okay. And so finding those slots of time. And so I usually end up saying my mother is retired. So she goes to the YMCA at like eight in the morning and piddles around, et cetera. And I, I tell my mom all the time, mommy, I go to the gym with the, with the retirees now because literally there's no one there except for me and the retirees during the day. Um, and, and I love it because I'm still getting it done, but I don't feel the have to feeling. I feel the get to feeling and I get to wake up rested. And I know a lot of people during the pandemic, including myself, did not have really good sleep schedules. So if you don't have a good sleep schedule, then obviously you're not going to have a good wake up. Yeah, I, I now do it based on my energy and based on the best time slot of the day. And so I've kind of uh, given up my membership card to zero dark 30. <laughs> to be honest, as a runner, I can't do zero dark 30. I've talked about this on my more athletic podcast, but gut wise, that just does not work for me. So I can't do it. I can't do it. Or I'd just be running around my house, like hitting the porta potty every like mile. So anyway, <laughs> okay, before I, before I let you go, because I've, I've already kept you long enough, but I did want to talk about just role of social media, how it plays into your business. You're very active on Instagram and on LinkedIn. And I feel like those used to be two very separate things, very, very different things, right? Like Instagram was like this artsy, like hip kind of like young people yes. thing. And LinkedIn kind of got this like fossilized, like, uh, it's, it's the old white guys on there. Like, but now it seems like LinkedIn has, it's like having a moment again. 
or maybe I'm just like getting more involved. I don't know. What do you, what do you think? Where, what's your social media strategy here? Look, look, you crack, you're cracking me up here because I was not on going back to pre-pandemic, post-pandemic, pre-pandemic. I was barely on LinkedIn at all. I mean, I had an account, but I wasn't active on there. I mean, I couldn't even remember when I had accessed it, couldn't remember my password, nothing. And so I wasn't, it wasn't a thing for me. And then um, I started having even more virtual speaking engagements with organizations where their industry was more involved in LinkedIn. And so they would go to LinkedIn to find me or see what I was doing or, you know, when am I going to be speaking next or what do I think about X, Y, Z? And I was like, crap, I don't have anything out there. Okay. And so, yeah. And so for me as a higher ed person, most of the students that I was working with were either on Facebook, Twitter, or TikTok, not at all LinkedIn, right? So that wasn't even on my radar. And I'm thinking, oh crap, here we go with yet another platform that Shauna has to manage. I don't have time for this. And so given that I list, I'm big on podcasts, especially entrepreneurship podcasts. And one of them that I listen to pretty often is called Nikki and Moose. And Nikki and Moose, they uh, talk a lot about uh, just branding in general and entrepreneurship and so forth. And they had a guest, I can't even remember which guest it was, but they outlined six things to think about when you're branding to make it really simple. And I slapped it on a post-it note and put it on my computer and that's where it is at all times. Um, But those six things are posting anything connected to associations or collaborations, right? So Molly and Sean are collaborating on do-do-do-do-do. And so I'll post something with your logo, what have you. So associations and collaborations, Second, quality skills. So what's a skill that people need to know that comes from my industry? So like you mentioned before about uh, hiring practices, or maybe it's about putting together a DEI committee or how to do DEI work with no money. That's a skill that people need to know about. I, I could come out of this podcast right now and post 10 things that we talked about. So that would be a quality skill. Um, the third one was multidimensionality, meaning that show you in different aspects. So yeah, I show the business me at the desk, but I also show me on my run or I show me getting out of the pool or I show me being silly with my boys at drop-off or whatever it is. And so showing the multidimensional aspects of being a business owner. Um, I remembered one time someone mentioned how, I don't know, how polished, (laughs) how polished many posts are. And so that's when I started posting what I called the ugly Instagram. It's like, yeah, y'all are real hype when Shauna gets the six figure uh, contract. But let me show you my desk is blown up. I've got five cups of coffee on my desk. I got cough drops and chapstick here as I'm doing the work under one light bulb. And you need to see the ugly Instagram of how that happened. Right. So showing all that multidimensionality, certainly giving back. We've already talked about that giving back. So Uh, philanthropy, y'all will probably see um, in the next few days or so. I would love people to be aware of the organizations that we gave to so that they can give as well. Um, Just being authentic. I mean, (laughs) I've come out of the bathroom before with my hair standing all over my head and cream on my face. And I took a picture saying, hey, this is what it is, y'all. When I'm not working, this is what is it, what it is. Um, That authenticity piece and then just the consistency. Um, I follow uh, Lily Zhang, who is phenomenal. And she just launched a book as well, DEI Deconstructed. And one of the things that I noticed about her about a year and a half ago, I am talking about she is, or excuse me, wrong pronouns. They are, they are as consistent as clockwork. If the sun rises and sets, 
they're posting. And it's only one post a day, but that one post is like a whole lesson on DEI that you're thinking about all day. And so, you know, that's the last piece is just that consistent output. And if y'all look around, you'll see that a lot of my stuff I post on three or four platforms, the same information in different places. So I can make sure that I access different people in different ways. But those kind of six things that I pulled from that podcast, that's what I've done for the last two and a half years or so. Um, and it's it's reaped a lot of benefits and a lot of clients. And, and I'm really appreciative that I rediscovered LinkedIn during the pandemic. What can I say? <laughs> I love it. And I will definitely include a link to that episode of the Nikki and Moose podcast in the show notes. I'm like, I'm downloading it now just so I can listen to it on my run after this, to be totally honest. There you go. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, well, absolutely. I could keep talking to you for hours. I think we're going to have to do round two. But before, before we go, tell everyone where they can find you, where they can connect with you, where they can see all the things. All the things. Yes, absolutely. So I would say uh, go to my janky website that we just talked it about before. Lovely. <laughs> Molly's a fan, so she, she's going to think anything on there is lovely, but I, it, it's sleek, but it's not advanced by any stretch. But go to goldenterprisesllc.com. Go check that out for me. Um, also, too, when it comes to my Instagram and my uh, uh, my Facebook, obviously, is Gold Enterprises. My Instagram is Dr. Gold Speaks. My Twitter handle is Dr. Gold Speaks as well. And just go check me out there. You can find me anywhere. Um, I will say I have a, a very weird uh, Jewish last name, actually, Gold. Um, and so there's no one else out there named Shauna Payne Gold. I've looked. Uh, so I'm out there. You can find me pretty easily, but I'd love to engage with you. Send me a message, an email. Um, I try to respond back in bulk. Um, so if you don't hear from me immediately, know it's coming. It's coming. <laughs> oh my gosh. Shauna, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. This was amazing. Of course. Of course. Holy crap. Was that not the greatest interview or what? And I don't just say that because I'm the interviewer. I mean, I say that because I learned so much, got so many valuable, valuable tips and takeaways. In fact, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to be doing a solo episode sort of heading into the new year. And one thing I'm going to talk about is the whole rates and what to charge and all of that. And honestly, this episode inspired me to make a couple of pretty big changes with uh, a couple of my freelance gigs that I had. And let me tell you, the results were uh, both impressive and depressing. So I'll get into that in a solo episode later. Uh, but now I also just wanted to shout out the her awesome advice on the three ways that solopreneurs can be a little more DEI friendly. I know, you know, not all of us are hiring people, so that's obviously not an option for a lot of us. But I loved her idea of making sure that you have people around you who can call you out, who you can talk to about this stuff, who, you know, you can check in with. I think that's that's so valuable. I love the idea of when you are looking for something like maybe a web designer or an accountant or a lawyer, or, you know, you're just trying to buy different products or office supplies, looking for that women-owned, minority-owned business. And that's such a simple but powerful way that we can be, you know, more DEI-friendly. And also, I loved the idea, and honestly, it made me think a ton about our social, our website, uh, that, you know, our, for my personal businesses, the idea of making sure that you're really speaking to everyone in ways that are going to be helpful for them. So, you know, my husband is a cycling coach, and we actually ended up talking after this about how he could actually maybe be more helpful with feedback in terms of does it need to be 
in the comments in Training Peaks? Or could it be an audio message, a voice message? Could it be a video? And I thought that was just such a great point that Shauna made. And I think it's it's also a way to just be a more efficient, effective coach. So for those of you in the coaching space, I think that's such a brilliant thing to think about. And I mean, could really differentiate you from all of the other coaches out there. You know, so it's it's not only the the right thing to do it's also you know just a smart thing to do and a really smart way to be thinking so i hope you got as much from this episode as i did like i said i already went back and listened to it a couple times so i would honestly bookmark this episode maybe give it a re-listen as you're thinking about your business heading into 2023 Uh, and please 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 if you loved it share it with a friend Uh, Make sure you're following business.of.fitness on Instagram. Make sure you're following Dr. Gold Speaks over on Instagram. And check out the Unfazed podcast, too, if you love this topic and want to learn more. All right, that's all for this week. We will see you next week. Thanks for listening.